Hello and welcome to Oya's podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Mark Van Versendal. Uh, Mark and his family recently, uh, they're originally from Holland, and they recently have been traveling around the world for the past three or more years, uh, right now in the Dominican Republic. And while traveling, he began to understand, as you travel to other countries, you begin to understand how the global financial system really does screw over other countries or how it partitions them or puts them on in their place on the hierarchy. This isn't to say that there isn't corruption in all these places and there isn't these weird underhandedness, but you get kind of get to see from the bottom up, especially when you're from the U.S. like I am or you're from uh, Holland like Mark is, that we have the more of the top-down perspective. Um, and you kind of get to see how it, how it works from from other angles. And so Mark started to see these things, observe these things, and it led him down multiple rabbit holes in educating himself on the global financial system and how it is structured in preventing certain parts of the world on and the average everyday citizen from accumulating wealth and experiencing freedom. And he began diving deep into this, and now he runs courses on it. So he helps people and businesses to get financially educated by sharing insights and doing educational programs and workshops about the history of money, why we invented it in the first place, why we need it, the current global financial system, how do we use money now, and what it did, did it lead, lead us to, the future of money, what happens with money, and true, when a true decentralization of power emerges. So these, all these same themes that Mark covers in his courses, we covered on today's podcast. We literally start the history of money. We go back pre-coins to the Bronze Age. We take it to coins made. We take it to, you know, Italian families, 15th century, all the way up to modern day. And we talk about the modern day system. So this is going to be a two-part podcast. Uh, the first part is on the history. And the second part is on the current state status of the financial system and the future of money. And... Some of the hidden psychological, maybe subconscious effects that the current money system has on us and how we make life choices for us and our own families. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation and stay tuned for part two as well. So Mark, thanks for joining me here today on the podcast. We are going to talk everything that has to do with finance and money and the economy. Now these are very abstract concepts to most people. Most people, it's just a, too complex of a machine to not even know how it works. And I would make the case that that's even the case for most economists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, money is an abstract concept that has been grounded in reality for most of human history. Um, so I kind of just want to start off by asking you, what the hell is money? Um, yeah. abstractly instead of just being dollar bills or gold or whatever but what is it yeah man yeah, but this of course like you know like we we talked about this like this 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 definition of money is i believe it's so important for people to actually grasp and understand what it is um in order to also have a quote-unquote better relationship towards money right because all this all this stupidity all these 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 limited beliefs and all this nonsense narratives that have been created by families education around money is of course for a lot of people the base layer of why they don't have a good relationship to money and so let's to just simply answer your question i would say like if someone thinks about why we invented money in the first place that's a really good way to start right because if you start there you actually find out that it was a beautiful invention in the first place and in the end, no matter what you say or make of it, it's neutral. It's supposed to be neutral. It's something like you you can use or you don't use it, right? And so I would say, like in my definition, like because otherwise I'm talking like for tw 20 minutes on only one question, right? I would say yeah. money is something that can store your wealth temporarily in and it holds its value through time and space. I think if you if you start with that, if you keep it simple, if mm -hmm. I create extra value, added value for the world, economic output, and I can temporarily store it in some kind of medium so that I can spend it wherever and whenever the F I want, then I guess this money is good for me. 
because then I can live my life and everyone who wants to trade value with me can live their lives. And whenever we need each other, we can store our added value in a medium that's neutral that we can all use whenever and wherever we want. Make sense? Well, makes sense. Allows me to also store over time and gives me value over a long period of time as well. Yeah, we bring into the fact that it stores wealth. So physically, I have something uh, to use and then oh, it also stretches out over time so you can save and whatnot. Um, yeah. All right. So let's start from the beginning. And when I mean the beginning, I mean the actual beginning. So I'm going to put a little preface into some of this and then uh, let's just see how you riff off of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and we'll go. Let's do it. So let's see. Let's start when money even had to appear or emerge as a form of you know trade for use, using it to trade with purchase with whatnot was agricultural revolution was the first time where humans stayed in a spot and they created a surplus for themselves generally via farming agriculture yeah um or you know and then other trades started to pop out of that and with surplus comes a way you have to offload it because you're not using all of it it wasn't just subsistence anymore it was, I have extra of these things and you might as well not just waste it and throw it away. And other certain people have certain skills that others don't. And so with agriculture, we started with the surplus. Now we take it up to the first globalized civilization that's ever existed, um, 3300 BCE to some say 1177, but it's really hard to put a year on when the bronze age collapsed. It was over like 120 year period, slow collapse. Um, well, let's just say 3300 BCE to 1177, because that's what the popular narrative is. Yeah. Um, and people, even then, money started not from the top down, but it started as a bottom up because people exactly. would use rare and precious materials to trade with each other with in this context. They would still barter. That was still the most common form of exchange there in the Bronze Age with each other because they were still dealing locally with each other. But then others would come from outside. So you had the Bronze Age usually in books is said to be like, you know, part of like they go over to where Italy is now all the way over to where Afghanistan is. And people generally forget about the Asians <laughs> during, <laughs> during their discussion of the Bronze Age. But in those areas, obviously, bronze was traded, which is, you know, 90% copper, 10% tin. Tin was primarily in Afghanistan. That's where they would bring it in from. And copper was primarily, I think, out of what's now Cyprus in that area. Yeah. So you had these precious metals. You had gold, silver, and the bronze. Um, you had in Asia, just not to leave them out, they used like cowrie shells, which are the, you know, used a popular currency for them because they were so rare. They found them in the Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, that area. Or you could do beads from these like precious metals um, or precious stones, I should say, such as like lapis lazuli, which is primarily found in what's now Afghanistan, or carnelian stone, which like the Minoans use, which is what's Minoa was now what's now Crete. And they would use that to build their columns. They also use it as trading stone, just as a couple of examples of these rare stones that they would use for bracelets, necklaces, and, and whatnot. And this system worked functionally kind of for a bit. And then after that Bronze Age collapsed, you started in the 7th century BCE, so quite a while after that collapse, uh, in ancient Lydia, which is now uh, Western Turkey, right outside of Izmir, in that area. They created the first coins, the first actual yeah. currency. So I just kind of wanted to give that preface of, but it did start bottom up. People naturally yeah. created this thing to work with. So I, I don't know if you could speak to this dynamic of bottom up, top down that happened yeah. in the history of money. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. And, and like the whole timeline that you just described, I think um, helps, should everyone uh, help at least, to think about that money in general was something that we invented for ourselves, right? Because it all makes sense. If you start as a group of people and you are the hunter and gatherer group of people and you need every strength you can get to hunt for food and the other strength that you still have left that gathers the rest, you get babies, some people get older and suddenly this group gets too big to make sure that everyone has food, right? So there was simply, simply no time to do anything else. And indeed, you said it already, like the agriculture um, 
came into place and people were indeed suddenly able to create a lot of food, surplus of food. So people were able to do something else with their lives. So uh, of course there's still barter, but sometimes people were thinking about weight. Like, so I, I, I can create something for myself. I can do something with my life that's way more purposeful for me or satisfying to me. But now I create this added value and suddenly I'm not sure what I can do with this added value. I mean, what is it worth, right? If I do, if I, if I'm playing at a theater or I'm doing something to create furniture or whatever, like, what is it worth? And of course you, um, like people being people, they try to figure out a way to measure value, right? It's nothing more than that. So I, I, I want to come back to this because in this whole timeline, it makes so much sense that we created it for ourselves. It was actually really important for ourselves to be more happy, to live in more prosperity, right? And I think that that's, that's the, the difficulty to sometimes in my classes when we do new earth economics and when we discuss it, is lots of people have, have still have this negative association, this negative energy around the terminology of money. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 is what we are talking about right now, because if you start from a bottom up process, it starts because there is a demand for it. We need it, so we create it. And now, we, of course, in this process that you just described, you have these, uh, of course, this, this group of people become a little bit larger and becomes like small villages. Small villages becomes cities, then maybe provinces or whatever, states or whatever, bigger, 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 bigger. And I think that if, if a group starts to get too big, they they feel they need some protection right and i can understand that they either try to protect themselves by paying people who protect them or you mm -hmm. have of course these people that thought hey maybe there's a business maybe it's interesting to not focus on money but just focus on guns focus on weapons because then we can just steal all the value from all these villages right and if that then becomes later a form of taxes, you know, and a form of like a, a police or an army or some kind of government that says, okay, you can have your village as long as you give 40% of all your wealth or your value in this village to us, we make sure not another gang comes here and destroys all life in your village. Like, I think that if people understand that this is how taxes are born, right? At least came into existence from top down, Whereas we created money from bottom up, then you can understand that this whole association of taxes and money, that it was not because we wanted it or we demanded it. This is because it's created from like a position of power, right? right. And so, so if you now take like, and if you then go through all that process, um, the, and, and if you then take this whole process or, or this whole transition into like these new ages, I think that um, of course, we figure out a harder form of money um, and we grow to silver and gold and copper and whatever we thought was more scarce and all the other things that we used, stones and, and shelves, and because it was less able to transfer value through time and space. But if then suddenly we have this group of people who control the money from top down, that's where I guess it becomes challenging. And I think that that is what we maybe need to talk a little bit more about. Yeah, it was because, you know, it's in the Bronze Age there, you had it was everything was decentralized. So that's why I mentioned the everybody found their own thing that was in their region or their area that that was a hard form of money. That's yes. why I mentioned the aid brought the Asians in with the cowrie shells because yeah. that that stuff didn't exist over in, you know, what's now the Middle East, uh, you know, uh, Southern Europe area, Mediterranean. And that was what they used uh, just because that was from them. But then the Lydians centralized it. Yeah, you know, they yeah. said, "Oh, this this is what we're going to use. This is going to be a common currency among all people." And then once you have that, because at that point, rulers or quote unquote what we now call a bank, you yeah. can't do that with a decentralized multiple currencies. No, you can't no. say, "Oh, we're gonna, you know, where, where are you going to keep the calorie shells? Where are you going to get them?" Yeah. Okay, bronze, yeah. sure, maybe gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, there are certain things, so they needed to bring it into one currency. And one thing for everybody to, to do in order to gain control over it and to have power over it. 
Right. Yeah, I would say like a centralization of power is almost always a bad thing, right? It's it's um I've studied psychology and, and one thing you learn and never forget, and everyone knows it, but it's so interesting to be aware of like power corrupts as uh, like it's it's such a negative energy if you have too much centralized power. And so like what you beautifully laid out just now is that people don't realize that if you have this same centralization of power in money. Now they suddenly can control everything. And that's really something that we, yeah, we have to think about why did we, why do we want this? Do we want this? And what can we do to prevent this from yeah, growing even further to a centralization of power? And I would say that with all these different types of currencies, that there was always in a certain degree, a centralization of power within that specific, like, mm -hmm group of people there was always some kind of centralization but because they couldn't like grow any further you always have a choice and that's what decentralization in 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 this case actually means so i would say um this is an interesting thing to uh, to to um, elaborate on um what i would say also is we have to think about money as um if you see money as something that there's only one money that will attract all the value of all the other monies, like liquidity wise. That's interesting then why did we end up um, at a like centralization of power around money? Was this because of the people, because of the choices from top down? Or was this because indeed this one hard currency was simply the best in the world and therefore we naturally grow or grew into that, that currency? What would you say? I would say it's a dynamic relationship between those two factors. So if you imagine like, why did we need to start centralizing it? And I think you laid it out nicely is because all of a sudden the guy from the other tribe comes across the river and he goes, I'm going to kill you. And you go, oh, well, we got to protect. Um, we got to protect these people. And so I need, you know, what is money been used as a war chest, right? Time immemorial. Yep. Yeah, you have to. The king has to accumulate the gold to mass the troops, to pay the troops, to get the weapons made, to do all this stuff, and it becomes a measure of protection. So, yep. we we want a currency, and we naturally had currencies that were rare and scarce. So we did have that inward, you know, intuition about that it should be scarce because otherwise everybody could have it. Doesn't mean anything. It becomes valueless. But we also, due to human again human uh, way we conflict and fighting we had to centralize it to a certain extent so that, that a group could take control so we could be protected. It's yep. kind of like, um, I'm, I'm not Christian, but if you've ever read, you know, in the Bible, there's a segue, the way the books are laid out, it's between the judges, books of first judges, second judges, and then down the road is kings. And if you read the segue of human, like small councils, small tribes, whenever you'd have a problem in a tribe, you would just go before the council, which is a series of judges, people deemed to be the most wise in a yeah. group, and they would adjudicate the problem, right? Yeah. yeah. And then there was another tribe came over, so you would need a king. And it had to switch from being wisdom-based because they're not going to accept your wisdom. They don't know who the fuck you are. Yeah. And they don't yeah. care, yeah. right? So then you need a king, and the king has to execute and protect people. And then... The king, but because of that, the mechanism came into place where the king had all the money because protection is paramount uh, for survival of a group from another tribe that's invading. And yeah. so the money accumulated not with the wise people, but with the guy who's always ready for wartime. And we see this, you know, I can give US as I think is a prime example, and this goes for any empire throughout time, is they're always creating fear, they're always creating the enemy, they're always creating something so that they can keep printing their money because it's you, you always have to keep a wartime mindset yeah in order to keep doing this and pushing people out of it you know not the wisdom to actually run your people you know normally or like to help them out or do it but no 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 because the, the king the king or aka the president is paramount they're the decision maker yeah that yeah yeah so yeah. yeah and and you know like it's 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 still it's still very interesting because like because this this invention of money this process of moneyness where it was a bottom up process so people were clever enough that they realized we need something to make life more easy and better for ourselves 
to something to store our wealth in temporarily. And maybe it wasn't a conscious process, maybe it wasn't a rational process, but it was maybe a trial and error process, who knows? But what, what is very interesting to me is back then, people realized what money was for. It was actually for yourself to store your wealth temporarily in, so you can use it somewhere else in another time, in another space, whatever. So you can store your wealth because maybe you cannot like instantly trade right now, so maybe you do it on later times. However, if you transport to right now, almost no one understands money, the definition of money, mm -hmm. and they actually believe within their core, all their cells in their body believe that money is something from the government. Money is top down. It's like the government decides what money is. Instead, there's almost no one, except for the people who are enthusiastic about it, but there's almost no one who starts to figure and ask him or herself the question, wait, um, why should money be issued by the government? Because what would money be for me if I can choose my best form of money? What would I choose then, right? And that's interesting because if you ask yourself the question, what would I choose if I can choose my own money? You can already see in real life that people choose other things. They choose right. the, the, the stocks, whatever, cryptos, whatever they choose. They try to figure out something else. And this is mostly subconsciously. This isn't even consciously. And then you come back, I think, and it's very interesting. There's a huge conflict of interest between money from the government or what money should be for you. Right? Right. Right. Exactly. Well, they have a different relationship to it than you're supposed to have. You're supposed to be debt free. They could run up all the debt they want. Um, they have a different dynamic. Um, uh, and, you know, like very rich people with their own companies, they use debt for those reasons. So they have to copy the government in order to play the game appropriately because you can't tax debt. So they actually yeah. utilize debt because they have the assets. Like there's this, and so they end up playing this like half individual game, half government game. And that's how rich people have to work because you're in this in-between world where you're not, you're never going to be as wealthy as a nation. But you exactly. still, and, and the na but the nation writes the codes for how money should be used and all the loopholes for their own people. And so then they take advantage of those, yada, yada, yada. It's all been bastardized and decoupled. And you can see, see this like slow decoupling over time, right? From of money from reality, even just as like a measurement of the value of particular goods. So I, I lived in the Middle East for a while, and you have, you can see it at farmers markets or you can see it at, um, like these little street markets uh, when I was I was living in Istanbul. And you go down and you can see it's standard practice. You go to the middle of a market to buy your groceries. Mm. There's some old woman. She's guy selling corn and she picks up a piece of corn and all the corn is not, does not look exactly the same, right? It's some of it's better, some of it's worse. And she's arguing over a particular price for one particular piece of corn. And she's bartering with like going back, negotiating the price with him. Right. So it was yeah. actually more coupled to that very physical, particular object. Like it was very specific, measuring the value of this one fucking ear of yeah. corn. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, it remi always reminds me of uh, time zones. The way uh -huh. time zones used to be, I, it's probably the same in Europe, but like when you would travel in the US back in the day, you would have to, you go to the next town, the town would have a, a main clock in the center of town, and you would change your watch as you went to each town. <laughs> And they're like, this is too fucking confusing. The measurement is too specific. So we create time zones. So all of a sudden you like, you time travel an hour yeah. after you've done it. Like, how did I time travel a whole hour? It was the same time in all of these places. And now I'm ahead an hour. Woo, I feel like a time traveler. And it's, it's the same thing with money, right? You, when you commodify something, it becomes where it's like, okay, well, now all pieces of corn are the same price. Yeah. It's like, well, no, yeah. but they're not equal. And then they have to start doing this thing where they aesthetically make them look equal and you start yeah. manipulating them to make them all look very pretty and so all the same so nobody feels like they're getting ripped off. So yeah. all these like kind of dynamic feedback relationships are happening. But the same thing happened with money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you had to, and at first the, even the church understood this, which the church's religion is a very bottom-up enterprise generally that again has that top-down conversation happening but the church understood this and for our christianity um and islam were big on you don't it's not fair if you charge your brother interest if you give them money loan them out money that's not fair 
don't know if you could speak to when that broke, <laughs> when that got you know overturned and they they changed up the rules. But that was you could tell even for a religious institution, which is basically a communal institution. Religion is spirituality practiced in groups. Yeah. So, yeah. like you know, and they they saw that that wasn't fair. So they you know. But then somebody broke it. I don't know if you could uh, speak to that or speak on anything that I just said. No, well, like, you know, um, I, 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 I cannot speak about that particular moment when and, and why that exactly was. But I can, like, just thinking about it, like thinking about it out loud. Like, um, I would never, like, as a person, the way I'm raised, I would never um, charge interest rates on something that I lend out to my brothers or my friends or whatever. In fact... I have some things lend, lend out like the last couple of years and I, I, I actually don't even think about it. And I, and I see, what, I, I don't worry about when I get it back and if I get it back, I don't care how much I get back. So that's how I'm raised, like from core values principles. However, if you stop and think about it, if like, because we, we came here, of course, in, in, this, in this area of this topic is, there's this conflict of interest about how a money should work for a government and how a money should work for ourselves where we want it as stable as possible because then we can store our wealth that we created today this added value that we created today we can store it temporarily and we can use it 10 years from now in another space in another space mm -hmm. in another time whatever so for us it would be very nice that it is stable the same is true if i lend it out to my brother if i lend it out to my brother right now and he wants to pay me back let's say three thousand dollars in about two years then I expect three thousand dollars in two years. However, the the way the, uh, the 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 current financial system works and the governments want their money to be is they want it to lose value through time and space. They want it to lose value as fast as possible because then they can spend as much as possible. So if this simple thing, like it's so simple, like a government issued currency they are in control of the printer so they want to be able to use the printer whenever they deem fit or necessary so if they push the button that means by definition they devalue the currencies in our pocket so they wanted to lose value whereas i wanted to hold value so now suddenly now suddenly you can understand that i should charge my brother interest rates because otherwise i'm just giving him money I'm just mm -hmm. giving him money, right? So now suddenly mm -hmm. it's this $3,000 because I get it back, let's say in five years, then it's actually worth $2,100. So I just gave $900 away for nothing. So you right. can argue from a religion point of view, is that honest? I can now factually have a discussion with my brother. Dude, if I give you $3,000 right now and you give it back to me in three years, I actually gave you $900 or eight or seven more. So if we then go back to the church and or the Islam or Christianity or whatever, either they knew this, either like this is like top down created, listen, like we have this, we have to make sure that the, that the church is part of the government, part of the whole narrative to make sure that we change our relationship to money because other, otherwise people will notice or learn or whatever. Or I'm not sure someone just did the math and found out like, listen, if I just gave him today $5,000, that's not what it's worth in five years from now. And that's, I, I think even now I speak to a lot of intelligent people, clever people in different areas in their lives. And they have a lot of difficulties they have with grasping this simple fact that if they lend me out today, that if I give it back in five years, that they actually lost a bunch of money. They, yep. it's not there and that's really interesting even if i explain it they have this sense and and this this is a, of course a specific group of people and they you probably notice in your own life as well i kid you not but they are just they are literally defending the government and the current system with everything they have in a way as if it is part of themselves and i think that this is really interesting why do we have so many people who are defending something that's slowly destroying them. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, they replaced G-O-D with G-O-V. Yes, yes, yeah. That's, that's why. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. It's it's daddy. Yeah. It's, it's the transcendent one. It's the one who should know better. It's the one who's supposed to take care of me. It's the one they wouldn't do that. And it's always, you know, 
the market fluctuates, but that's why they, you know, like there is, there's that narrative that we have what the, the market is wrong. The market is chaotic and the government's there to bring order. And when their lives are in chaos, then they don't understand that it's actually the corruption of the money that's causing that. And then they just want the government to give them more control. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if you, if you grow up in a bureaucracy state, bureaucratic state, people for some reason think bureaucracies are great. (laughs) Um, and it's just, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, and, you know, so I, that's that's what I would say. It's just their view. They have they have nothing transcendent above them, and so they have to look to some authority figure, and they're reliant on the individual and the technocratic. And these people are obviously they went to better schools than I did. Obviously, they're professionals in this. Obviously, they know all these assumptions are underlying these things um, and how it's formed because you grew up with it. And you don't know any better, and when you don't have you're not embedded in the community anymore, so you're atomized in some city where you don't talk to your neighbors ever. You don't even know who the fuck they are. Um, yeah. There's so many aspects of this where it's just they've been isolated, and so through isolation, they just think, well, who else is going to protect me? Who else is going to do it? And if you have somebody protecting you on one front, like war, you know, then they, can, they should be protecting. They have my best interest in mind, and they're really trying, and it's that other group who is trying to fuck me over and vice versa. So it becomes the tribalized stuff and the tribes within your own country that you're looking at. Yeah. Hey, how far do you think this goes? And I mean, like we, we, we have, uh, they have a few instruments, of course, right? So they have the, the, the media in general, and they have, of course, the, the educational structures mm-hmm. they have as well. Um, when I talk to people who are ready to open their minds, so they're not there, what, what we talk about, they, they are still... Uh, they have still replaced god with gov still they are still like really really enthusiastic about the government and about all the good things that they have done in the last 30 40 years whatever however they seem a little bit more open to at least have a debate that we can have without people getting angry however they they constantly get stuck with the with the thing is they say they, they tell me all the time mark how on earth are they able to organize this because they they simply cannot grasp a situation whereby the media is controlled and or the educational structures are deliberately structured in a way to create this narrative. They think it's impossible because they still believe in the integrity of the individuals within those structures. So they 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 don't believe that the protocols enforce people into do whatever they should do because their boss tells them to. They believe. I'm a person with integrity, and if I should do something from, for the government whereof I think that's not honest, I wouldn't do it. Therefore, nobody does it. Therefore, this is a conspiracy theory, what you are saying. How, how do you react on that? What, what, what are your thoughts about that? I'm curious. I tell, I tell them, basically, I say I don't need a, an actual conspired plot to have a conspiracy. So, like, if you it, it, I can take this to any group, any ideology. You take any ideology, it doesn't matter if it's political, religious, um, you know, if whatever it might be. I tell them, like, look, these guys all work under the same narrative. They all went to the same schools. They were taught the same narrative about how this works. They work around people. And even if they didn't and they come in, everybody else is following the same narrative. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So what you're basically saying or what you believe is they don't actually need all these instructions from top down because they are indeed all in it together without them knowing that they are consciously in it's like the education it's the whole society it's the whole narrative that we are raised with you you do what your professor tells you to do then you become a professor your professor he talks to other professors and the whole funding machine the whole field that's why the yeah yeah that's why they only hire people who go to certain schools um And then they're like, let's bring in the media into it, right? Yeah. They, they, you know, I don't think they ever get explicit instructions, maybe every once in a while, but they don't get explicit instructions being like, you will cover this story. You yeah. will da 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 da. You can see FBI and CIA, we have proof of them meddling and stuff like that, like what happened with the Twitter files recently yeah. about them saying, yeah. don't cover this. So there, that stuff does go on, and that, there is proof of that stuff. But I would say, by and large, it's too much to keep after that you to control all that, micromanage it, all those people working on things. So it's really just their own narrative that micromanages them. 
Yeah, and again, yeah. economic incentives, like what we saw during the pandemic, well, Pfizer sponsored sponsoring all the ads on major media networks. I mean, so yeah. <laughs> e- even if Pfizer doesn't explicitly tell you you have to say this, the incentive is there that we don't want to piss off our sponsors. Yeah, of course, of so, course. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's unsaid. It's yeah. just a you know, uh, it, yeah. There's no like di- it's not always direction coming from on high. It's just your part of incentive landscapes can appear without explicit. Oh, direction. no, it's like I even I've been, quote unquote, victim um, of this myself as well. Look like I had big, big customers with my with my business before this. And these businesses all have a um, some some kind of reputational energy in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, where I'm from meaning that they don't want to be involved or they don't want to be associated with someone tells something that the majority doesn't like. And I'm always on um, on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Instagram, just sharing my thoughts and beliefs. And I hope in a normal way. So I'm never like, I'm not doing it to piss people off. I'm just in my sense, asking the right questions. So if I then ask questions about a certain narrative, just out in the open, I already, so I have the incentive because I know they pay me. I already know their opinion because they don't want to be associated with anything. Let's for example, against vaccines or whatever. They don't want to even associate it with it. So if I ask a question, what about the vaccines in this particular situation? I already got an email. You know, I got an email, dude, we don't, we don't like this. We don't care about your opinion, but we don't want to be associated with it. And since you give like, high-end training within our company don't do it so so i'm already incentivized without them telling this i already knew so subconsciously or consciously i already knew okay i can better shut my mouth because then i i I get paid and then and and i am and i'm an entrepreneur so i'm i'm supposed to be free and i can choose my customers whatever i know in a way you're still part of the system and if you want to eat if you want to pay for your shelter and your house just play along, just play along. And the better, the more you play along consciously or subconsciously, the better you will be off. And I guess that is, that's the energy that you sense in almost like at least the Western world was a, a very high energy. And, and that makes sense then why has never been teaching me or telling me the truth about money. And that it was in fact a bottom, bottom up process. Right. And why does nobody teach me? Like in school, what should be a preferred form of money? What should be a money for you? Why would you choose that type of money instead of that one? And I guess that if you start young, like with my daughters, I teach them um, thinking about money to have a neutral but good relationship with money. And then they can choose. Like if I show some different examples, which one would you choose? A glass or a skateboard? What would be your preferred way of money right now? And they're going to think about it. I guess that Mm -hmm. that should be in the educational forms. And as long as that it's not there, I think we can safely conclude that there is indeed a conflict of interest in government issued money or a good form of money for, um, yeah, for, for the rest. Exactly. Let's, let's take it back to historically when they started this decoupling aspects, because I wanted to get into the Medici family. Um, they were a family in power in Italy for a long time. They owned a lot of the big banks. Like I was saying, the religious side, they had this rule in place where you couldn't charge interest to your brother, right? And they, what they said, well, the way they got around it was the same way that centralized money got to a certain point was, A, they, were, they started charging interest on foreign exchange rates. So it was internally, if you were trading amongst yourselves, you didn't get charged interest. But if it was with another tribe, quote unquote, then they could charge interest on that. And then eventually, over time, they convinced the church to just say, listen, this is the best way to go about this. Really? I mean, like this is we need to make a profit here. The government wants this. You want this. You guys will make more money. We'll get you, you know, all that and the other. So that was a thing. And then I think you and I talked offline about Islamic finance. Yeah. And Islamic finance tried to keep to the fact that it needs to be tied to a physical asset. It needs, you can't do the interest rate thing. But I don't know if you know the way Islamic finance got around that. 
Um, well, most today, most Muslims use conventional finance anyway, right? Yeah. There's yeah. a few people who believe in Islamic finance, and there's different thoughts on this among Muslims. Uh, but there was a basic step uh, a mechanism called is called murabaha. Murabaha. Have you heard of this? No. Tell me more. Murabaha basically is if I want to buy something and I need a loan, like say for example a car. I go to the bank and I say, hey, I need this. And now in Islamic finance, you should have the assets to back that up. Or yeah. You should have something that you're able to write. Right? It's not just money out of thin air. So instead, what the bank does for you under that mechanism is they buy the car for you at market price. Mm -hmm. And they basically act as a retailer. They mark it up and sell it to you at a higher price. <laughs> and then they, you have to buy it from them. So they're like, you know, mark it up 20% or whatever. So they're basically getting that extra profit back on what they bought it for. Okay. Okay. Hey, and then the, the car is then the fiscal asset that's still connected to that amount of money that they borrowed from the same bank. Or do I, do I understand it correctly? So they don't, they don't borrow it technically because the bank buys it. The bank sells it to the person. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, but yeah, at a marked up price. Yes, yeah, so, but uh, help me here. Like, um, I want a car, but I don't have the money. So I go to the bank. I want the money. Now they buy it for me and sell it to me. But do I still have a paper contract that, like, yes. where it stands, like, I need to pay this 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 market price plus 20% right. over that car? It's so it, it's, it follows the same thing. It's It follows the same procedure as, like, if they seem that, like, what's your salary? Could you pay back a loan of this? Can you pay back a car with yeah. this 20% markup? Yes, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Um, the price of money, but could, then without interest rates. It's just right, right. profit. They're a loan shark. They're a loan yeah. shark. Yeah. And it, but they just, so instead of them charging interest, that's yeah. how they get around it. It's profit right? now. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So they they realize, and again, it becomes one of those things that um, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but it becomes one of those dynamics where uh, you have a group of people who have agreed upon way of doing things, seems to be working, and then one person, it only takes one person to default on that agreement that everybody has, and then they get ahead, they get an edge. They start out-competing everybody, which then pushes other people to start defaulting. And then all of a sudden you have a group of people who are all doing something that's not for the greater good. And it's actually something they would prefer not to do, but they feel like they have to do it because they, you know, oh, well, if they're doing, I have to do it. And I, if I, they don't, then I'll be screwed and my family will be screwed. And this is again, the same thing that goes applies to our, where I said earlier about the government and why people fall in line and do these things. Yes. So it's, it just takes, it takes one person to default and then everybody else starts doing it. And now all of a sudden a group of people is doing something they prefer, actually prefer not to do as a group. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> like, basically, basically, you just shared a perfect example of the current banking system as well. Like uh, the bank, the, the, the bigger banks who are too big to fail, they can do all kinds of risky business because they cannot fail anyways, because they're simply too big and that will like destroy the whole economy. So they can take all these risky loans. They can use all these spreads. They can do whatever they want with the interest rates. They can lend out money to people who are not able to pay it back in, in times of crisis, in times of recessions, whatever. But the smaller banks, however, they are not too big to fill. They just let them collapse if something bad would happen. So they don't want to take on these risky loans, but they have to just to be in the same field with the other banks only to get right. customers, right? Right, exactly. So and, it, and the fact is what we just saw with Silicon Valley Bank and these other ones that went under, I mean, what, what happens when those guys go under is the, they're not part of the protected class of banks. Exactly. That's my and point. And so yeah. what people know and what people then inherently do is they take their money and they put it in the big banks. So the big banks even grow more. Yes. Which and makes them even more. Yeah. And now you get a sort of like banking cartel. And this is, again, what we uh, you, you just spoke about the families and the whole timeline is this energy to a centralization of power. So the big banks talk to each other, guys, we are too big to fill. So we can do whatever the F we want. That's that's so, so clear it is. This FDI, FDIC insurance and all this yada yada, just make sure like we can take on risky shit and smaller banks are in trouble. So all these people who know like, oh, the bank where I am at, which is a quote unquote smaller bank, is less safe than the bigger bank only because they are definitely rescued. 
So I bring my funds, my deposits to the bigger banks and so goodbye smaller banks. This is just called a process, a decentralization, uh, sorry, a centralization of power. Right. And, and, and people forget and people don't realize that this was the plan altogether because it makes sense that if you have all the money in the world as centralized as possible, you can decide whatever you want. And money is indeed power. Like you, if, if someone tells you, you cannot do that, you don't listen if you don't want to do it. If you have money, if you quote unquote have fuck you money, and we both know what it is. If you have fuck you money because it's not being controlled or not able to, manip to be manipulated, you can do different stuff than someone who has his money solely by a big bank that just can get frozen whenever you do something that's not quote unquote acceptable. So right. yeah, and, and, and this, 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 power corrupts this this energy that always leads to centralization of power centralization of money that should in fact tell people to wake up at least about this quote-unquote definition of money why did we invented it and use all the history that you just shared as well hey this happens time and time again until something implodes or explodes so maybe we should learn from this Right. I, I think to get people aware that the the fear and the the wartime economy idea is what's keeping this system in place. Because yeah. the end of the, yeah, I mean, we listen, we have to have a certain centralization of money, especially on a global economy scale. Yep. It has to be there. Absolutely. But the way that they're using it and the mechanisms they put in place over centuries is what slowly corrupted it. I'd like you to talk about the decoupling from gold because that was like the last straw, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and people probably have noticed if if people are old enough to remember this hyper financialization of everything in U.S., in Europe, in parts of Asia, like in all all around, where everything was all of a sudden finance just went like took off. Yeah, and I remember in the U.S. there were people leaving like rocket science jobs with NASA, yeah, to go work yeah. in Wall Street in the 80s <laughs> you know and you're yeah. like what what's going on here like all of this money just went straight to this place and it was when they decoupled it from yeah. any physical reality exactly yeah. from this from this thing so i don't know if you could talk a little bit about that yeah of course like like you just used already a few examples and i think like if you understand that money should some way somehow be connected to something physical physical then you come again back to the definition of money so if mom if people understand what money is supposed to do then you can understand also that it needs to hold their value through time and space if not if not so if it's not holding their value through time and space people are incentivized to spend it as much as possible as soon as possible also to loan, to borrow, sorry, to borrow as much as money now because it's going to be worth less later on. So it's going to be cheaper to pay it back in the future. So you incentivize borrowing and you incentivize spending. That makes sense, right? And if you then, I think that people should know we're listening. Like we were, we, we realized as a species that gold was a better form of money than a lot of other objects because gold was scarce, relatively scarce. And it's difficult to mine. It's expensive to mine. It's a whole operation to mine. And so it's like, I think that the traditional inflation rate of gold is 2% per year or something. Yeah. You can't yeah, right? flood the market with gold. No, you cannot flood it. So, so, so if for the, for the ones that are listening and are not, are, 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 are hearing this for the first time or for the second or the third, please, please think about it. That if a government has to tie their, paper money that they can just print to a physical element like gold and they just print more and more money it becomes worth less relatively to their gold so right. countries know this and if the base layer is gold they should always be aware of how much gold they actually have because in the end it's tied to the amount of gold now we just told you like you can you cannot flood flood the market with gold so you cannot well actually it. it it did happen one time in history what that time I know, that I know of? What um, time was it? Uh, you know Mansa Musa. Uh huh. Have you heard of him? One time. Tell me more. Uh, Mansa Musa was an African king. Uh -huh. um, he was, I think, lived in like 1300s, and he he basically he had to spend his time. He inherited his empire from his dad, 
and they had spent their time just mining the shit out of gold yeah. in Northern Africa yeah. where they were. It's like, it's like modern day Mali where Mali oh, yeah. is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, he was known for having the most gold more than anybody oh, wow. ever had in the history of one person or one nation, you know, he's the emperor owning this stuff. And he was interested in like Islam started coming his way. And so like, you know, traders and people, and he kind of got interested in, in that. Um, and he ended up traveling. He wanted to go to Mecca to oh, do yeah. the Hajj, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an old story of Mansa Musa who was traveling from where's Mali and going across with his entourage, all his servants and all his people. Yeah. And all these people just like covered in gold. They have a ton of all the servants had a ton of gold too. There was just so much of it, right? Yeah. yeah. And he he stopped along the way in what's now Egypt. And he stopped and he said, Hey, visit the king. And he said, Yeah, come on out here. And he gave the king a bunch of money to let him stay there and do whatever he wanted a bunch of gold yeah. and then his servants went out and they stayed for like a period i think it was like something like a couple of weeks but they servants are also a ton of gold on them so they went out and started shopping on the egyptian streets so they inflated and of course, the whole system and so the whole the whole the egyptians all of a sudden were like holy shit look at all this gold and so they raised their prices and they're like well we don't care we'll just give you more gold and so yeah. then the gold started becoming meat and they just flooded the whole fucking flooded town with yeah. gold and it fucked up their economy for yeah. years. Yeah. I think it took yeah. them something like 12 years to recover from this guy's two-week trip wow. coming wow. through wow. their fucking thing. Because what now is, everybody had gold. This is yeah. a perfect example because this is this is so good for people to comprehend. Like if you if you suddenly expand the supply of monetary units of flowing around the floating around or chasing around the same amount of goods and services, prices will go up. So Indeed, well, we have this perfect example that even with gold, it is possible, especially in this specific unique situation. However, like we at least had a base layer of gold where the, where the paper money was connected to, right? And, and I think that people have to realize that um, if gold is the base layer and they devalue their currency to gold, then of course the paper price of all the goods and services goes up. I hope people understand that if they just print more money and these these monetary units are flowing around or chasing around the same amounts of goods and services, just like with this example. In Egypt, you see the prices going up. However, measured in gold, they were still the same. So the wealth of a country was still measurable. And if you then like, yeah, we can go in of why they, of course, uh, why Nixon took the United States or the United States dollar off the gold, gold standard. But as of that point in time, we are solely on a fiat currency standard, a paper standard. And that basically means that all the value is now stored in paper that can just be printed and created whenever they want. And as you know as well, this has some serious side effects for everything we do in life. Because suddenly, um, like with gold, you can store your wealth and you know it has the same value through time and space later on or almost the same. But if you have to store it in paper, now suddenly you have to spend your money now and or borrow now because it's you have this incentive that creates lots of more demand in the now, meaning you get this whole society that consumes way more than they actually could on a gold standard. And I think that this is very important for people to understand because we make all kinds of decisions subconsciously based on our monetary base layer. And subconsciously, we now suddenly do stuff that's actually not good for us. And that can, like, you can think about all kinds of things. But if you just simply think about, like, buying an expensive house, for example, and you need to borrow 800,000 euros or dollars to buy it, you don't have the money yet, but you're incentivized because interest rates are low. So the price of money is low. You're incentivized to borrow it now basically from future society, basically from future you. And that means basically that you have to work a very long time. So you're basically um, trapped or mm -hmm. enslaved, financially enslaved to the system. And now you have to work your whole life to pay it back. And I think that if you, um, if you understand that if you are still on a gold standard and there is less um incentive to spend now and less incentive to borrow now you think more rationally 
about borrowing and more rationally about spending. And so probably our whole level of happiness is more sustainable and is less red race connected, chasing goods and services we actually don't need to be happy. So it's a really, it's, 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 it's really interesting um, to talk about the societal impact of these, this, this decision, what they took in 1971. We, we've gotten stuck in the politician's mindset. They have five-year cycles, four or five-year cycles. Yep. And we, and so they don't ever plan long-term. No, no. And we've got getting caught in their mindset. And even um, you go to when the spreadsheet was created, and now it's be called what they call quarterly capitalism. Instead of a businessman actually planning out tens of years of for his family to hand the business down to his family, he has to plan on a quarterly basis, which is insane and changes insane. the decision-making process to something that is totally perverse and doesn't make any sense. No, um, and no. So, and yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's very um, confusing for people often. And it's also a little bit tiresome that people think about um, or try to blame capitalism or try to blame something like that. Like we are destroying the world because we want to, make more money and forever grow however they they don't think about that if we have a money that's um better that's not a uh, broken that's not losing value to time and space we are in the basics already not incentivized to only consume more and more and more because if people understand that we live on a debt-based system so no gold underneath the money but error actually paper contracts of debt if they, if they stop and think about that that's what we are in right now, then they also understand we need inflation. We need a constant form of printing of more currency units in order to finance that debt that is forever growing. It's basically a, a vicious cycle. It's, it's, yep. it's a debt doom loop. And if we understand that we constantly need inflation, aka governments and central banks printing money to finance the debt because otherwise it implodes and we lose everything, then they understand that if we could fix that, and that's the gold standard, like I'm not saying we should go back to a gold standard, but we talked about it in 1971. Mm -hmm. If you have a base layer that, can, that that's way more difficult to inflate or almost impossible, then you would all already solve lots of the problems that we have today. And this over consumerism, that mm -hmm. energy, will probably will be way lower than we have right now. And you can also argue that in the sense of like a level of happiness, that people feel less, that they have to chase less in order to just be happy. But that's the psychology part of the money part that we are discussing right now. This may be for another time. Well, yeah, no, I would say I, I noticed what time it is and I think you have a hard stop coming up. So I, I, I would say uh, we do this again. And I would say next time, Ron, we've gotten up to the gold standard area. So after, maybe for the next conversation, we can talk about the hyper-financialization of everything, including commodities in the market yeah. um, and just money printing in general. Um, and then talk about just what the uh, where the Fed came from, these Federal Reserves that came. Yeah. I think the first one ever was in your, your old country, correct? Yeah, 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 definitely. The, the yeah. central banking area already started in England and, and, and the Netherlands. And of course, the Federal Reserve of the United States was 1913. But that story in right. and of itself is also very interesting to take a look at because right. it probably helps people to understand why we are in the situation where we are in right now. Am I correct historically that the Dutch one was the first one due to yeah, the Dutch East Indies company? That was the first yeah, yeah. one. That was yeah, the, yeah. We were the first one to financialize uh, certain assets and that was so this we, yeah yeah this yeah, this yeah. podcast is an american and a dutchman sitting down flagellating themselves going oh our country we we started this whole mess this new stuff um yeah <laughs> yes we have to be honest we are we are the ones to blame here and we have to also now help the world see that and try to figure out a way to improve it for everyone on earth yeah so i i say let's get into the, the, the yeah the contemporary modern financial system uh go back to the federal reserves do the over hyper financialization uh post the gold standard and then we can also touch on the psychology of that and how it affects people Does let's that sound do good that. to you 
Let's do that. Yeah, that's perfect. I think that if you uh, if we can talk about that and where it's coming from, why we are in this mess right now and how this affects us psychology wise, I think that if we can wake up from that or be more aware that we can change our lives, even if even if governments and central banks decide to yeah turn this even up a notch, what they yeah. seem to be doing, that even then we can still find ways to quote unquote escape it and choose for ourselves. Yes. Yeah, 100%. We'll also touch on the CBDCs, which is an exciting we, new topic. We simply have to do the CDBCs as well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thanks for coming on, Mark. I, I really love the conversation. I'm looking Thank forward to you. the next one. I had a blast and looking forward to the next one as well.